A couple of weeks ago, um, in John chapter 3, if you were here, you will know that we met a man called Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a stand-up guy. Uh, He was religious, a member of the exclusive Jewish group, the Pharisees. Uh, He was a respectful man. Uh, He knew how to handle himself. He related well to other people. And he was a respected man. He was a recognized leader within his community. Uh, But what we saw is that despite all of these things, Nicodemus still needed Jesus Christ. Uh, He too was a sinner. He needed to be born again. He needed to be given a new heart despite uh, his apparently good-looking exterior. And this morning we meet someone else. Uh, Someone we might say is at the very opposite end of the spectrum to Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus had a lot going for him. On the other hand, this woman from Samaria seems to have everything stacked against her. At first, she is a woman. A great thing in itself, I should say, but quite a burden in first century patriarchal culture. Secondly, she's a Samaritan. And now the historical information we have about this group, the Samaritans, is limited. But we do know they were despised by the Jews. They were well out of the religious mainstream, a cult or perhaps a sect of Judaism. There was a lot of racial prejudice against them because of their background as well. And thirdly, uh, we discovered this Samaritan woman lived uh, what we could call a colorful life. Uh, She'd burned her way through five husbands, and she's currently shacked up with a live-in boyfriend. Uh, We don't know the history there, of course. Uh, Some of that could have been her fault. She could in some ways have been a victim. Uh, But even by modern standards, her history stands out. Uh, She'd experienced more than her fair share of relational breakdown. And finally... Uh, She certainly doesn't have the airs and graces of Nicodemus. Uh, She's a woman who is very direct, a a plain speaker. Uh, There's a bit of an edge in the way she addresses Jesus Christ. Uh, She's a very interesting character, that's for sure. And I have to say, one day in heaven, I am looking forward to meeting her. And I think this contrast between Nicodemus and the woman of Samaria is quite deliberate uh, by John. You see, the point with Nicodemus was to humble the proud, to challenge those who believe they are good enough uh, and therefore feel perhaps they don't need Jesus. Uh, But the point today with this woman is quite the opposite. Um, Here we learn this, that God shows grace even to the most unlikely of sinners. Uh, We might write this woman off, many people had, but not the Lord Jesus. In fact, this is exactly the kind of person Jesus seeks, uh, the kind of person he came to save As he says elsewhere, it isn't the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so here we have both an encouragement and challenge. The encouragement is this. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. Jesus' arms are wide open to all kinds of people. And yet here is the challenge. It is a challenge to never write someone off. In John 4, Jesus cuts through our prejudiced assumptions. We learn here that God shows grace to all kinds of people. And he wants us to be open-hearted in the way that he is. To love and embrace others, no matter how colorful or different. And so the focus here today is on the grace of God, the true grace of God. Specifically, how the grace of God meets us where we are. And how in his grace, he gives us what we really need more than anything. In this encounter with the Samaritan woman, we learn three things about Jesus. Three ways in which he provides this true grace of God. We learn that he is the true well, 
the true well. We learn that he is the true temple, the true temple. And finally, we learn that he brings about the true harvest, the true well, the true temple, and the true harvest. Those are our three points today, and they are all, in and of themselves, powerful images of the grace of God at work amongst us. Uh, They describe how Jesus Christ is everything we need. Uh, And they show us as well how Jesus fulfills everything that came before in the Old Testament. And so let's work through them. And as we do, I hope you find this both comforting and and also challenging. Uh, Because firstly, we learn here that Jesus is the true well. Uh, The true well, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that Jesus is the only satisfying source of life. Uh, He is like a deep wellspring. Uh, Just as our bodies thirst for water, Jesus provides living water for our souls. Uh, Only in him can we ultimately find what we need deep down inside. Uh, Only through him is true life possible. Uh, Look at it this way. All of us believe, all of us uh, seek life and satisfaction in some sense. Uh, The problem is in our sin, we look for the wrong things in the wrong places and in the wrong ways. This woman had sought to find life in love, in marriage. But all that left her with was a callous heart and and a string of broken relationships. And maybe you can identify with that. It's just like we read in the second chapter of the prophet Jeremiah. Also using this image of a well, listen to what Jeremiah says, what God says about our sin in Jeremiah 2.13. And my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. For us, it might be money, it might be sex, it might be success like this woman, it might be marriage or family or some other relationship. Finding life in the wrong places is looking uh, like looking for water in a dried up well. And yet Jesus is the true well, the true source of life. And this comes out clearly in this exchange. Let's first of all get the context. Uh, Jesus is traveling uh, back up north to Galilee from his trip down to Jerusalem. And as he does, he takes the usual route. He passes through the region of Samaria. At lunchtime comes, it's noon. The disciples go off to buy food in the town. And so Jesus, weary from his travels, uh, takes a seat beside this well. And as he's sitting there, we read in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came out to draw water. And I think we have to say the whole scenario here is quite awkward. A Jewish rabbi, a Samaritan woman with a sordid past. You can almost feel the tension. Today, we'd usually be sitting there playing on our phones, trying to avoid making eye contact with the other person. And yet Jesus blows right through the social conventions, uh, only to make things more awkward still. Uh, Verse 7 goes on, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And picking up in verse 9, the woman uh, said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now John tells us why it's so shocking. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. You could literally translate that. They didn't share the same pot with them. And yet here is Jesus, not just asking to use the water jar, but even asking this woman to serve him. And having broken the ice, although I think we can say things are still pretty frosty, uh, Jesus takes the conversation in a totally different direction. Uh, Look down with me at verse 10. Uh, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
And now from this point on, the conversation runs on two tracks. Uh, This is really common in the Gospel of John, and and the very same thing happened with Nicodemus, if you remember. Uh, What Jesus says works on two levels. There is confusion. The woman thinks Jesus is talking about literal water, just as Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about literally being born again. Uh, You haven't got anything to draw water with, she says. Uh, Where are you going to get this water? I mean, uh, the patriarch Jacob dug this well. Are you better than him? And now, of course, Jesus is much better than Jacob. We know that. Uh, And that comes out in this contrast uh, that we find from the Lord Jesus. It's a contrast between what is temporary and insubstantial and and that which is satisfying and permanent. Uh, Look at verse 13. Uh, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now this is what I mean when I say Jesus is the true well. Uh, Only through Jesus can we experience true and lasting life. Uh, By eternal life, Jesus is referring to a quality of life, a quality of life that begins now, a new relationship with God. Uh, But he's talking about more than that. He's talking about a life that continues forever, life that will never run out, life that will never disappoint. Uh, The chance to spend an eternity in a world where everything is the way it's meant to be. Uh, Can you imagine that? Uh, Did you notice how this living water is contrasted with everything that came before? I mean, this woman is eager to draw attention to the history. And this is not just any well. No, we're told up in verse 6, this is Jacob's well, and, uh, and it sits in a very important place. Uh, this is near the ancient city of Shechem, which actually is the very first place that Abraham built an altar when he entered the land of Canaan. Uh, this is one of the first and only places uh, in the land that belonged to the patriarchs. Uh, Jacob bought this land from the sons of Hamar, and it's part of the inheritance that he gave his beloved son, Joseph. In fact, Joseph's tomb is just down the road from where Jesus speaks. Remember, Joseph asked for his bones to be brought back uh, to the land from Egypt. Uh, What is more, this sits uh, right beside beside Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Uh, Those were the very places where God declared both the covenant blessings and the covenant curses upon his people. In other words, this well doesn't just sit over a literal physical stream. It is part of the bedrock through which God's purposes flow, all of his redemptive plans and promises. And now here at this well, it's as if true water breaks through. All of the streams of revelation come to a head in the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself is the source of everything that came before. We've seen this, haven't we, in John's gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Uh, Jesus is greater than Jacob. He's greater than Isaac. He's greater than Abraham uh, because he is God. In fact, he's the one who called them uh, in the first place. And here he is following through on everything he said, bringing life, uh, bringing blessing, reversing the curse. And so if this woman wants to know true life, the life she was made for, she must turn from her sin and come to him. Uh, And the same is true of us, isn't it? Verse 14 is a promise for us, a promise for you. Uh, Jesus says to you, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Uh, Come to the Lord Jesus now and he will give you this water. Even if you've come to him before, then then this morning come to him again. Uh, How often are we drawn back to those old broken cisterns that cannot give life? 
Uh, We look for life, we look for satisfaction in other things, often good things, but created things rather than the creator. And so come to Jesus Christ, the true well of life. In him we find the life we were made for. Jesus is the true well. That's the first thing we see here. He's the true and only satisfying source of life. But secondly, we also see that Jesus is the true temple. He's the true temple. In other words, not only is Jesus the only satisfying source of life, Jesus is also the only sanctifying place of worship. Jesus is the only way for us to connect with God, the only way to be reconciled to God. He's the only way to experience real forgiveness. Only through his death can our guilt be taken away. Only he can make real atonement for us. And that is what this woman needs. It's what all of us needs. And to help draw this out, notice the way that Jesus gently confronts her. Look down at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. But what you have said is true. What is going on here? Why does Jesus say all this? I mean, clearly, first of all, we can say Jesus is revealing something about himself. In his divine power, he already knows everything about this woman. And yet, even though that's true, as one commentator points out, his remark is not designed to merely be self-revealing. Rather, it's designed to help this woman to come to terms with the nature of the gift he has to offer. Uh, This is Jesus' response to her request in verse 15. Uh, I mean, she she actually wants some of this water, doesn't she? She wants the life that Jesus offers. Uh, But if she wants that water, if she wants eternal life, there is something very important to deal with first, isn't there? Uh, We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about the life that she's lived. We need to recognize that, that that life presents a very, very serious problem. Uh, We should never forget, Jesus was never afraid to address sin. I mean, we shy away from discussing the subject, don't we? Because it's such an important, it's such an unpopular thing to discuss in our culture. Uh, The most popular Bible verse used to be John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Uh, Now I think it's Matthew 7.1, don't judge, don't judge other people. And so we never want to talk about sin, we never want to call sin out. Uh, and, but we discover that's not true with the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, no, in fact, this woman's soul is far too important for Jesus Christ to avoid it. Uh, because to experience new life in Christ, she has to recognize her sin for what it is. Uh, to experience new life in Christ, she has to repent and turn from the old life. And so Jesus says all of this to draw attention to her need. Uh, to draw attention to her need. Uh, Look at the response that she gives in verses 19 through 20. She's immediately struck, isn't she, by how much Jesus knows about her. Uh, And so in verse 19, uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, And then she asked this question about this conflict between the Jews and Samaritans. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that people ought to worship. Now, at first glance, I think it seems like she's changing the subject, doesn't it? I mean, this seems like a classic diversion. Uh, Jesus has put the finger on something personal, something in her life. He's exposed her sin. But, but rather than addressing that, it sounds like she's more interested in a discussion of theology. 
And now I have to say that could be what's going on, but I actually am not really sure that's quite right. After all, I don't think this is first and foremost a lesson in human psychology. Uh, because there is another better explanation of what is going on. I mean, why does she bring up uh, this question of the temple at all? Uh, as I said, this was a huge debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, but why did that debate matter? Why was it so important? Well, to ask that, answer that, we have to ask, what was the temple for? It was a place to worship God, yes, but what did that worship involve? Uh, in the Old Testament, we have to say at the very center of that worship, there was sacrifice. Uh, that's what the temple was about. The temple was first and foremost a place to make atonement. Uh, the temple was the place to be cleansed, a place to be forgiven, a place to have your sins washed away. And so it makes sense as Jesus exposes her past. She knows she needs forgiveness, but where is that forgiveness found? Is it at the temple in Jerusalem? Uh, that's what the Jews said. Or is it, is it in the Samaritan temple up on Mount Gerizim? Uh, do you see that, why this matters? Why, it, in one sense, it isn't a diversion at all. It isn't just a religious debate. Uh, this is really a question of where this woman should find hope. Where can she find restoration? Where can she find forgiveness? Where could she find true healing? Is it on this mountain or is it on that mountain? This isn't just a hypothetical question. I mean, uh, step for a moment into this woman's situation. Uh, in his grace, Jesus has exposed her sin. And we have to say Jesus often exposes our sin by his spirit through his word. He challenges and convicts us. Maybe he uses gentle words from a friend or, or, or a spouse or a parent or a child. But when our guilt is exposed, what do we tend to do about it? We often get defensive, don't we? We often do try to divert. And maybe we try to make amends, which I think is the right thing to do, of course. But what do we do with our guilt? with our shame when our sin is exposed? Is there a place we can go to experience freedom and forgiveness? Maybe that is why you come to church. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe you grew up going to confess to a priest. And when you did that, you experienced a certain catharsis. And yet, where can we go to find real forgiveness? Where is true atonement made for us? People try many things. Maybe they go to some spiritual place or, or try something spiritual like, like yoga or mindfulness. They try to connect with God here or there. They try to deal with guilt here or there. For this woman, it was a choice between these two mountains. Which is the right way? On the one hand, Jesus does tell her the Jews are right, doesn't she? she he says, look, uh, salvation is of the Jews. We worship what we know. And yet they were right uh, only in the past tense. Uh, look down at verse 21. Uh, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, but he goes on in verse 23, doesn't he? The hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh, Jesus is saying it isn't this mountain or that mountain. No, no, in fact, it's me. I am the truth. I will give you the spirit. I am the one that you need to come to. And this is what I mean when I say Jesus is the true temple. He is the place we meet with God. In fact, we meet with God not in a place, but in a living person. You see, now that Jesus is here, this debate between the Jews and Samaritans just makes no sense. It's like an argument that we might have about the best way to watch a video. And now in the past, we might have discussed VHS versus Betamax. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, people used to watch movies on tapes. 
there were two competing technologies, VHS won out. Uh, of course, nowadays, the whole debate doesn't really matter because you can stream movies anywhere, on your internet-connected TV, or, or even just sitting now on your cell phone. Uh, and in the same way, we can worship God anywhere, anytime. But there is only one way to do that, through the atonement provided by the Lord Jesus. Remember how John the Baptist introduced him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died for us, the righteous, for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God, as we read earlier this morning. Only through his death can our sins be taken away. All of the sacrifices in the temple pointed towards this one true sacrifice. Those were simply a shadow of the things to come. And he is the reality. He is the true grace of God. He is the true temple. And this is why he came to provide living water, uh, to be the true well, and to provide access to God for people like this woman, sinful, needy people. He came to be the true well of life. Uh, and he came for us to be a true place of atonement, the true temple, the true way to worship. Uh, and in doing this, let's look at one more thing before we close. Because we discover in uh, verses 27 and following that in doing these things, Jesus also came to bring about the true harvest the true harvest. Uh, the true harvest, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, I mean this, that through Christ, God is bringing about the fulfillment of his ancient plan, a plan to gather to himself all kinds of people, uh, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And the scriptures speak about that as a final harvest. It, it's an image of judgment, but it's also an image of salvation. And now part of me wants to break into that song, bringing in the sheaves, but don't worry. I don't think that would be quite a blessing. But the point is this. The harvest of nations has been God's plan from the start. Uh, this was God's purpose, even with everything that he did with the nation of Israel. Israel were God's special people, God's chosen people. As Jesus himself says, salvation is from the Jews. And yet God's blessing was always meant to flow beyond Israel's banks. I mean, this is what God said to Abraham, isn't it? In you shall the families of the earth be blessed. In fact, Israel was only meant to be an incubator. It was meant to be an incubator through which God would raise up the Christ, the serpent crusher, the worldwide savior. And Jesus is that savior. That's the point. In fact, it's the very point of verses 27 to 42. Uh, we don't have time to look at it in quite as much detail, but the main point is clear. It's right there in verse 42. Uh, notice how God puts these words uh, on the lips of an unlikely crowd, the Samaritans. Uh, but what is the point? Uh, well, this is indeed the savior of the world. Uh, that is the point. Now that he has come, harvest time is here. And Jesus explains that to his disciples, doesn't he? They return to him in verse 27. Of course, they're, they're stumped when they do because now he's talking with this Samaritan woman. And she drops her uh, water jar and runs off uh, to the town to tell the other people there about Jesus. And then there is this exchange with the disciples. They've brought Jesus some food. Uh, he isn't hungry. He's got some other food. And again, we have this misunderstanding. It works on these two levels. Does Jesus have other food? Well, well, no. But in one sense, yes. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he goes on to explain what that work is. And he uses this image, this image of the end times harvest. Do, not say, do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes harvest? 
Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What's the harvest he's referring to? Well, I think it's pretty obvious the harvest is people. In fact, it's the people who are actually coming out to meet him, even now from this Samaritan village. The harvest has started, Jesus says. It's, it's right here, it's right now, it's happening in front of you. And who is Jesus gathering? Is he gathering upright Jews? Is he gathering to himself people like Nicodemus? Well, maybe, maybe he is. Uh, but, but notice what he's doing here. He's drawing to himself all kinds of people. In fact, incredibly unlikely people. Uh, Jews, yes, he invites them, but he invites Samaritans, and soon he will also invite the Gentiles. And how amazing, I mean, think today about uh, how, many, how we have such a focus on inclusion. Uh, inclusion is such a big word, and there's something noble about this, but I've noticed so often when we speak about inclusion, uh, some of our very best efforts to include some people only exclude others, don't they? And yet this is the amazing thing about the true harvest of Jesus Christ. It truly is for all people. Uh, the true well, the true temple is open to people from every background. And no one is more inclusive than Christ. I mean, listen to what Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord now calls us to be witnesses, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but, but, but into Samaria and on into all nations. I mean, we know this is true. I don't think uh, anything I'm saying is new, but is this how we live? Uh, I don't think so. I think often in our minds and our hearts, we are tempted to exclude certain kinds of people. I mean, think to yourself for a moment. Who is beyond the pale for you? Uh, who do you think would never, ever, in your wildest dreams, ever become a Christian? Uh, maybe it's someone you see around the town from day to day, or maybe it's someone much closer to you. And maybe it's someone like this woman, someone with a sordid past, someone who's currently living in sin, someone tough, someone cynical, someone with a very rough exterior, as someone you have written off. In fact, maybe you have more hope for people like Nicodemus, religious, respectable people. And yet in John's Gospel, who responds most readily to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it self-righteous Pharisees? No, it's these Samaritan people. I mean, this woman is on fire, isn't she? After this brief encounter with Jesus, she, she literally drops her water jar and then runs off to tell her whole village about Jesus. And what that shows is this. Now that Jesus has come, no one is beyond the pale. God calls all people everywhere to repent and to come to Jesus. In fact, right now, this is what God is doing in the world, isn't it? He's drawing people to himself. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Now, all of us are a part of that, and yet it's why it's especially encouraging to have Chris and Ashlyn here with us. Uh, this is part of God's big harvest plan. They are part of God's big harvest plan. And I'm sure they have plenty of stories to, to, uh, to tell of how what Jesus says here is true. It might be slow work, and yet the fields are ripe. God is at work. And now that Jesus has come, the final end times harvest has begun. 
And isn't that great? Isn't that encouraging to us? Uh, To know that Jesus is the true well, that he's the only satisfying source of life. Uh, To know that Jesus is the true temple, that he's the only sanctifying place of worship. Uh, To know that Jesus brings the true harvest, that he is the savior of the world, that he came for all kinds of people. Isn't that a huge encouragement, no matter who you are or what you've done, that Jesus came for you uh, and invites you to come to him this morning? Uh, That he invites you to to know new life? That he invites you to have true access to God? Uh, That he invites you to be a part of his uh, beloved chosen people? Uh, And yet as much as that's an encouragement, doesn't it present us with a challenge as well? A challenge to open our eyes and and open our hearts uh, to welcome the very people that God himself welcomes. As I said at the start, there's a contrast, isn't there, between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. Uh, Through Jesus' words to Nicodemus, God humbles the proud. Uh, But through his words to this woman, uh, we see how God gives grace to any and every humble, needy sinner who comes to him. Uh, we, We need to know that grace ourselves, don't we? And we also need to learn to show that grace to the other people around us. Uh, We need to learn to point other people to this true well, uh, to the true temple, uh, so that we can play our part in God's true harvest mission. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for uh, this encounter between the Lord Jesus Christ and this Samaritan woman. And thank you for the fact that you've recorded this for us uh, by your Spirit in the Scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help each one of us hear and heed the the encouragement and the challenge of these verses. Uh, Lord, we thank you for everything that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he truly offers salvation to all kinds of people. Uh, And, Lord, therefore, we pray that you would open our hearts, uh, that we might be a part of your great harvest mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.